Hello, Vetfolio Voice friends. Welcome back. I'm so happy you're here joining us for this episode, sponsored in part by Elanco and featuring a topic that I feel like is so important in our clinics, and that's essentially a low-stress experience, but in particular, a low-stress recovery for our anesthetic patients. For this talk, I was joined by Donna Sisak, who, in addition to being a CVT and LVT, holds a VTS certification in the area of anesthesia and analgesia. We know that a low-stress, positive patient experience, particularly for our patients who are in the hospital for a sedated or an anesthetized procedure, is beneficial in so many ways. But how do we actually keep these pets calm and relaxed in the clinic? Well, Donna and I dove into an extensive discussion about how to begin this intervention before the pets even come through the door. She had wonderful insight. I'm so excited for you to hear it. Let me tell you a little bit about Donna and we'll get into our talk. Donna has 36 years in the veterinary profession. Her first five years were spent gaining hands-on experience in small animal hospitals in Pennsylvania And from there, her love of the veterinary profession and passion for teaching led her to academia. Upon graduating from Harkham College in Pennsylvania, she continued her work at the Matthew J. Ryan Veterinary Hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. At Penn, she was able to satisfy her drive to provide top medical care to patients and her desire to educate which led her to obtain seven teaching awards and, as we mentioned earlier, a BTS in anesthesia and analgesia. For the last 13 years, Donna has been immersed in specialty medicine at Seattle Veterinary Specialists, fulfilling her role as veterinary technician specialist and providing in-house and regional training. Donna is an enthusiastic member of the Elenco Professional Speaker Panel involved in educating and advocating for safe anesthetic and analgesic care. Her longevity and passion for the profession makes her an incredible champion for her patients and for other veterinary technicians and nurses. Her passion really comes through in our talk, so let's not delay any longer. Let's get into it. So joining me today is Donna Sisak to talk about anesthesia and a good recovery for our patients. Thank you so much for being here today with me, Donna. Thank you, Dr. Cassie. Uh, This is exciting for me to be part of such an important conversation. We're so happy to have you. And I think this is such an important topic that we really need to pay attention to. So I'm excited to talk more about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think people forget that the recovery period is as important as it is because, you know, we're too busy. I think sometimes uh, I I just know from students elated about getting through the whole process without any problems. And then, you know, celebration time is when I extubate and uh, that may be when the job just gets busier and harder. I totally agree with you. And um, maybe as, as we get a little bit further into what we're talking about here today, I, I can tell you a story that happened to me just yesterday, where um, after you and I spoke initially to kind of get our thoughts together to do this episode, um, I actually had a case yesterday where I had you in the back of my mind and I made some decisions based off of our previous conversation. So hopefully it'll benefit everybody else out there too. Oh, that's awesome. Well, see, that makes my, I mean, that's, you can't put a value on that. That to me is greater than uh, any, you know, gift card, any bonus, anything, because that's really what, what our job, my job is right now, I feel is touching more patients. And this is allowing me to touch more patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even after just a short conversation, you're already, you know, causing huge benefits. So I think this episode will will have the same effect. Excellent. We call it the ripple effect, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, our focus kind of like we touched on is a peaceful recovery for our anesthetic patients. Um, That begins before they ever even come into the hospital. That was one of the things we talked about. So can you talk about the strategies that you use for minimizing patient stress before they ever even walk in the door? Yeah, that's really important because honestly, I think that our work begins exactly like you said, before they even walk in the door. And I think that's, I think the client plays a role, the client, the guardian, the mama, whatever they want to call themselves plays a role in helping us set them up also. And I think if we're, we're busy and sometimes we're not always remembering to send them home with stuff, uh, you know, to, 
to, to get the ball rolling, so to speak, uh, before they actually enter the hospital. But I think it's really an important responsibility of clinicians and, and support staff to remind clinicians to, um, especially those patients like your your guy Wrigley, um, that's excited about life and and may may just be excited about life, but may also be stressed about where they're at, is to start the process with um, you know some pharmacology before they come in the hospital. Maybe it's some trazodone, maybe it's some gabapentin, um, depending if you're a feline or your canine. Um, but I think that really also I think prior to COVID, um, I would try to get people to meet the the pet with the owner because i think when you meet the pet with the client and the pet sees that everything's okay i think sometimes that also gives you a shoe in with that pet um and i also i would always tell the client you know like right now we are actually doing important work because your dog wrigley is letting me uh, knowing that is is allowing me to uh, have a conversation with you and meet him and everybody's okay mom's okay Wrigley's okay Wrigley feels not not so uh, like I'm a stranger and that just begins I think that begins it but I think there is a pharmacology that should be involved too for a lot of these patients because we sedate them but that doesn't necessarily mean we take care of their anxiety Oh, yes. I remember that conversation many times in vet school where sedation um, sedatives are not anxiolytics. They are two different drugs. So, um, you know, used in different situations for different purposes. Do you feel like every animal that comes in for, you know, say anesthesia or something like that should come in on some sort of anxiety medication or is it more for like the select cases? Well, that's an excellent question, doctor, because I think, um, I think, you know, the majority should. Um, but again, we're going to go back to that word that I used to tell my students, if you take note of how many times I say this word you're, and put a dime in the bank, you're going to have a lot of dimes at the end of the two week <laughs> rotation. Um, individualize. Um, you know, I think it's really important that we we start our individualization with them when we meet them and we learn their temperament and you know, their likes and their dislikes. And I think it ends up being if we polled, uh, you know, all of the patients, I think a lot of them would want something before they would come in. And, you know, the feline patient really doesn't always get the right treatment. Um, you know, that that's, that's a big, uh, I think we're doing a so much better with feline patients, but uh, in regards to how we're, you know, helping them with their visit into the dog's world, because I don't think a lot of us think that we're doing okay. And I think we, we don't think that uh, the cat minds being there as much as the cat minds being there. Um, and, you know, some of us now have cat areas, which is great. Um, but, you know, we may not be able to have that within the practice. Um, but I think we really need to be focusing a lot on our feline patients too, and what they're experiencing because they don't always tell us like the canines do. Um, but I think what I've witnessed is when patients come in with the influence of some pharmacology, um, it only sets us up for a better experience with them um, because that just helps us minimize how many more drugs we have to use. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you, you think about it, even from a human perspective of, you, know, you can absolutely appreciate the benefit that would be there from some sort of anxiolytic. And I totally agree with you about um, the feline patients because they're just oftentimes too stoic for their own good. So um, I know I've been guilty of just, I guess, assuming that, you know, they're, they're not trying to eat me, so it must be okay. And that's not necessarily the case. No, that's, and that's the thing. I mean, I think, um, and, and, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't like working with cats. And I say, well, you just because you may not know the cats and you have to learn to, you know, they're a harder species to understand. And I, I don't think that's any surprise to anybody. And I think as humans, the species that we are, uh, present company excluded, of course, um, <laughs> we, we like to... Um, you know, maybe push the blame on the other where, you know, oh, the cat is a caution or, oh, the cat is a tiger. Well, let's get to know that patient. And, and let's, let's first of all, understand Dr. Robertson, Dr. Sheila Robertson, who is one of my top heroes, does a great uh, webinar on from the cat's perspective and has the cat in the carrier or has a video uh, in the carrier and carries the carrier from the cat's view. And it really gives you an eye opener on what the cat is seeing when you're carrying that carrier in. And I think some of us, you know, in a busy world, cats require patience. 
And I think sometimes in as busy as we are and needing to get the day moving and done, uh, we don't usually take enough time for these feline patients. And I think that's unfortunate because I think if we did spend a little bit more time, it would eventually pay off in how, you know, these, these cats would eventually, uh, be accommodated within the hospital. Um, I'm not saying we're going to make them all, you know, lovers of the hospital, sure. but I think, I think we may find that we have a better experience with them. And, you know, if, if you're really that not into feline behavior, then maybe you get someone that can help you with that because uh, I don't think they're being treated appropriately in some instances. And, and I guess pharmacology again is a way, I mean, I hear a lot of people and see, that's the other thing is when I, when I make a pet, uh, less anxious, whether it be a feline or a canine, and clients see that, that makes them feel better. And I feel like if they feel better, the pet feels better because they feed off of each other. So that's the other plus to setting our patients up before they come in is, is helping, uh, you know, the client less anxious and, and the pet less anxious. And sometimes that goes along with just making the pet less anxious. Yeah, and we can benefit everybody in the scenario, um, ourselves included, you know, and then our patient and our client, uh, everybody wins in that scenario. That is so true. That is so true. So let's expand upon the individualization a little bit, um, because I agree with you, the name of the game when it comes to anesthesia is individualization. What are some of the individual patient factors that we should consider? Yeah, well, that's another excellent question, doctor. Um, when I would uh, train students more than I do now, um, I would always tell them that, you know, when you're giving a patient to anesthetize and you feel kind of like a top spinning around, not knowing where to begin, I think the best thing that you can do is just slow down for a second and just think about two important things, the patient and the procedure. And with the main focus being on all about what the patient is, and this shouldn't slow us down. In fact, this should make us, once we get used to this um, way of approaching the patient, we should become more efficient and safe by looking at everything that the patient brings to the table, right? So we start from age and sex and breed and temperament and medical history and medications and diagnostics that might've been done, blood work, uh, you know, if there was radiographs and ultrasound and uh, cardiology workups and things like that, and any coexisting diseases. Um, also, previous anesthesia events um, would also be of, of benefit. I mean, it's a different day, so things happen differently, but it does give us an idea about how, especially if a good record was kept, on how well that or how not well that patient did with an anesthetic event. Um, and that can help us understand maybe which way we should go with it. But I think it's so important to look at all those things and, and not to think that it's going to take us half the day to evaluate everything um, because it should it should all come together uh, and when you get used to doing this um, it, it, it becomes second nature and then you think about what you're going to put that patient through and how the what the procedure involves and the top that I go there with is the pain associated with the procedure so what do we think the level of pain is that's associated is it mild moderate or severe and how can we then um, design a protocol for that individual for that event that we think is wherever on the scale of pain. Um, but again, you know, it's really important not to design your protocol for the procedure, but to design it for the, the patient's needs. I agree. I agree. Exactly what to keep in mind of what does that individual patient need in the context of what we're doing. So one of the things that you touched on when we first started chatting was, uh, you know, we can really sometimes, especially when there's all this buildup to getting this patient under anesthesia, uh, maybe it's a difficult procedure, even if it's, you know, a, a, a more, I hate to say the word routine, but you know what I mean when I say, say Absolutely, routine. yes. And, you know, we finally get to that place of recovery. We're extubating, everything seems stable. Some, it's easy to feel like, okay, we're home free. We made it. Let's move on to the next thing. But you kind of touched on that might be when our job is just beginning. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, doctor. Um, I used to tell this to students all the time, especially those students that um, never thought they could anesthetize a patient because they were 
having all kinds of anxiety is about, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to cause, you know, a casualty. I don't want to, I don't want to kill the patient and I don't want the patient to wake up at the wrong time. And I say, well, we have to find the middle ground. Right. And then they find the middle ground and they get through the procedure. And then they think at the end, when they pull the tube, that the job is done and we send the patient off into recovery, wherever that is. And we move on to the next thing. And, 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 and students have learned that sometimes that's where the job gets a little, you may have had the most smoothest anesthetic event, you know, your great pre-med, uh, great periop, uh, you know, event, and then you get to the recovery, which is extubation. And now you're dealing with patients, a patient that you're not quite sure what you're witnessing, um, but you didn't realize that it was going to be that challenging. Um, and so I don't think it's good for us to think about, I think we have a, a, a pre-celebration that we get through the periop, right? But we really don't do the full, you know, uh, streamers, balloons, and all of the other stuff. No fireworks, because dogs don't like them. Don't <laughs> then either. we need even more uh, trazodone. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But but we, we don't do our, we don't put our party hat on until we know that that patient is, is stable, uh, comfortable, and, you know, coming to their own, which we always say is, um, calm and comfortable waking up and warming up. Um, and, you know, because there are complications that occur and we know that in the first three hours, that's where most complications do occur. And that's where some people really want to be celebrating on getting through the event. Um, but the, the complications, I mean, as the anesthetist, my, my primary job is yes, to keep that patient asleep, uh, and stable, but one step even greater than that is to keep that patient oxygenated right? I want to make sure that they are staying oxygenated uh, and yes, keep them asleep. Um, and so on the recovery end, I want to make sure that they're still maintaining oxygenation, right? Because uh, we extubate them and we take away the supplemental oxygen and now they're on room air. Are they ventilating appropriately, right? Are they, because now it's 21%, right? Instead of hundred percent. And now there, you know, there may be respiratory depression associated with our recovery. Um, and that could, lead to problems like, you know, we call hypoventilation, hypoxia, hypoxemia. So these are all concerns that, you know, should be on the top of our list as anesthetists, because again, our primary job is to really keep that patient oxygenated and perfused. And if that patient comes out and is respiratory compromised, then complications begin. And a lot of times these complications overlap right? You, you may have hypoventilation and you may have then hypoxemia and then you may have hypotension, uh, you know, and, and, and some of these are, you know, an overlapping of where you maybe have to deal with one or two things. Sometimes dealing with one re remedies the rest of them, but uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's a critical time because these patients are still under the influence of drugs and we need to be in the ready position as to how the, an intervention may need to be. I like that being in the ready position because I, I just think that really sums up where we should be mentally when we're recovering our patients of, you know, just that continual check and ready to jump in and know, having an, a basic idea of what we would do if something did go sideways. Yeah, because I think, you know, if I can use the analogy, I mean, I used to play tennis uh, when I, I should play it now because it would be good for me for my aerobic activity. But uh, I played a lot of tennis in college. And um, I, I could use this analogy for those of you who play tennis or know tennis. Um, you're always on your toes. You're always on your toes. You're, you're always moving. You're always ready to get to the next where the next ball is going, you're trying to think, you know, we can't predict because gosh, if we could predict, we could do so much different with our life, right? Um, it's what I used to say, if I could predict, boy, I could be uh, making lots of money right now. Um, but uh, <laughs> if only that crystal predict, ball worked. Right, right. But we can, <laughs> but preparation and anticipation. And again, these are uh, two other words that I used to tell my students that if you hear me, you know, keep track of these words, individualize, prepare and anticipate, you're going to have a lot of coins in the bank after we get done two weeks of a rotation, because I think, 
and that begins in the pre-med part too, is the, is the prepare, preparedness and the anticipation of what might happen and always having a plan A, plan B, and a plan C. Um, and that seems maybe some people may think that seems like overkill, but that, you know, it, it shouldn't make you feel like your job is harder when in fact, if you're prepared, when something like that comes up, you don't have to do too much thinking um, because you're already prepared. I mean, I don't want to have to do math in an emergency situation um, because without the challenge, I have maybe tr struggles with math. So in a challenging situation where there may be a complication with a patient, I'm going to have calculated drugs ready. I'm going to have, you know, all of that in position that I know I, it just takes a few moments for me to have an intervention, but staying on my toes like a tennis player and getting ready for wherever the ball is going to move staying on my toes as the anesthetist, getting ready for whatever direction that patient is going to go towards is going to help me um, have a quicker intervention. And let's face it, I mean, seconds in some of these instances are like, you know, very important. Uh, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to wait too long to get involved because that could be um, detrimental to the patient's well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've, we've gone through a lot of this stuff, but I feel like I still have this very I don't know, maybe it's a basic question, maybe it's not, to ask of, you know, why are we so focused on this quiet and calm recovery? Why is a calm recovery so important to our patients? Well, you know, let's 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 be honest here, doctor. I mean, the, the goal for us is to get the patient home, right? To get the patient home. But before we get the patient home, we have to make sure that our patient is uh, stable and comfortable. And uh, the importance of a calm, comfortable recovery, well, you know, you could look at it from a lot of different points of view. I mean, if I have a patient that's waking up, and let's say it's a 50 kilogram dog that had a TPLO, okay? And I mean, uh, you know the type, I mean, these, some of these, and, and let's say it's a northern breed, right? Or, you know, we start adding things onto this right. patient. Um, this patient, again, you know, northern breeds have a tendency to be vocal, but they're not all. So we have to be careful with making, you know, breed predictions, that kind of thing. It's the individual. Um, but we know this patient coming in had a lot to say. And now we're concerned that this patient waking up might have a lot to say. And we want to try to hit the target with this patient's recovery, being quiet and comfortable and smooth, because the the problem is, is if, if this patient wakes up and is not happy, what, what end up, might end up happening is we might need four or five staff members to help with this patient. That takes people away from their job right? That in essence makes people less efficient. Now, this is looking at the team point of view, right? So from the team point of view, now I have everybody hands on deck, all hands on deck on this 50 kilogram northern breed TPLO recovering because he's thrashing and flailing and we're not quite sure what's going on, you know, um, but we need, you know, a lot of hands because it's a big dog that is strong and no one wants to get hurt. Um, from the dog's point of view, I mean, we, we want this to be a positive experience for the pet. And, you know, I like knowing that when I see my patients coming in on a recheck, they're not so scared to come back because they had a good experience. And this calm, comfortable recovery puts us in a place where we could say, well, we've avoided all of these possible complications of hypothermia, hypoxia, hypoxemia, um, hypoventilation, uh, rough stormy recoveries, um, pain, pain is a complication in recovery, right? So for us to be able to avoid all that, I mean, I would always tell students, think about how you would like to recover, right? I mean, put yourself in the patient's position and how, or how would you like your dog or cat to recover? And then I would see students doing a whole lot different approach with how, you know, they would want the sterile tubes and they would want this, everything have to be like right fresh out of the pack. And then they would want the, 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 the most cushiony bed. And I'd say, see now how you're thinking if it was you or your pet. And I think that's what a lot more people have to do is try to put yourself in the position of the patient. And how would you like to recover? And not only is it, you know, 
it, it's rewarding for us to witness, but it's a it's a pleasant experience for the patient. And I and that's what we're that's our job. That's what we want to do. We want no one wants to see a patient rolling around, thrashing, or or vocalizing, or you know, even if they're just kind of you know sitting there vocalizing. I mean, I feel like there is something we can do to help them have a better experience because our goal is is to get them back to themselves. Uh, going potty, eating, drinking, you know, and, and then, you know, extracting them out of the hospital and giving them back to their, their family members in a better, you know, not looking so uh, like they had a bad experience. That, all right. I want to tell you my story from yesterday, because it was right along those lines. And that's what I had in mind of, I, I needed this pup to come back for a recheck. And based on what I was seeing, I was like, we're not going to get this dog in the door again without her shaking and being upset. Um, it was on a, it was on a dental that I did surprise, surprise. I do a lot of those. I really like them. They're important. Um, They are, they are really bad teeth. We pulled a whole bunch of them. I think, you know, we really benefited this pup, you know, good anesthesia. We woke up, we were quiet, calm. Everything, you know, was, was pretty, pretty good. I wouldn't say picture perfect, but pretty close. And, um, you know, she was sitting there staying with us for a few hours, staying with us through that window of complications before mom could come get her. And, I went, I looked across the room and I saw her just kind of sitting up and she was, she was aware everything was good. This was a couple hours later. Um, and I walked over to her, but when I went to pet her, she tried to bite me and she hadn't tried to bite me the whole time she had been in the hospital. And so I was like, oh no, you're painful. You're, you know, we, she'd, she'd had hydro in her local blocks and everything like that. But I think everything was just starting to wear off. She was becoming more aware. And so we got her another dose of hydro. Um, and actually, um, the technician I was working with gave it when, uh, cause I had to go back and look in an x-ray and they said, man, you know, it was, it was pretty tough to give it. She wasn't real happy about us handling her and stuff like that. And about 10 minutes later, I went and picked her up and was like holding her like a baby while I was, um, writing records. And the same person who had given the hydro came over and said, did you just go and take that pup out of the, out of the kennel and just hold her like a baby? She, she didn't want me anywhere near her. And I was like, oh, her poor mouth was painful, you know? And that was exactly what was in my mind is if I leave this dog in pain, even though she's stable, she's not vocalizing, she's not thrashing, she's not causing any problem, but I'm not going to get her back in here next week when I want to do that recheck. Cause she's yeah. terrified. And, and that's the other part of it. I mean, pain, as we know, in our own individual experiences, it changes us, right? I mean, behavior wise, I mean, I'm usually a sunny, you know, glass always kind of mostly full kind of person. But when I have, you know, an ache or pain that is, you know, ongoing, um, for instance, a migraine or something like that, I mean, I'm a different person. And, you know, my spouse immediately will tell me, why are you being so crabby? And what's, and, and then she, will realize that I'm, I'm not feeling good. Um, and that's what our, our, our patients, you know, this is where sometimes we give them that caution. I mean, I think it's important that we communicate that this may be a caution, but also let's not give this patient like, you know, oh, this is like the worst dog we've ever dealt with. Maybe this dog is painful. And maybe that's why he wants to, he or she wants to, you know, snap at us or growl at us or don't want us to touch him or her um, is because they're ouchy. And, you know, you always want to factor in that there could be pain associated. And even like you said, I mean, she wasn't acting any other way um, that you could say was, you know, not a great recovery. Um, But she gave you her word when she said, don't touch me because Mm -hmm. um, this is what's going to happen because I don't feel good. Um, and, and you have to look out for that because sometimes, it, and, and that's, what's hard about pain assessment is it's not always a clear cut picture, but we always want to be thinking on the side of, is this pain related? Because think about it. I mean, you could have done really excellent blocks and you could have had, you know, everything set up and this could have been a, a, a perfect recovery in regards to the oral cavity. Um, but the dog has osteoarthritis right? Most older patients have osteoarthritis. And now maybe we pick the dog up and we hurt the hip or we hurt Mm -hmm. the knee or, um, I just had a dog yesterday that I, I had a little Shih Tzu named Gus that I, uh, sedated for a CT for a retroperitoneal mass. Um, and sweet. I mean, he would, he could have put his own catheter in. He was that sweet. I mean, he, he 
was such a sweetheart um, and just tolerated everything we did. But what, as we were positioning him in CT and I, and you know, for my protocol for CT, because we weren't doing any, it was just a diagnostic CT. We weren't doing anything to him. I, I used a little bit of Torb and propofol and midazolam. Um, he had a sore uh, knee and a sore elbow that I, I, I realized after the fact and for positioning the CT, he really let us know that he didn't like how he was positioned while he was somewhat sedate. Like he, he his heart rate jumped up. Um, he uh, woke up a little bit and, you know, started uh, crying a little bit. And that was not Gus. I mean, Gus was not that type of, I mean, this is a frequent flyer. So I've known this dog for a while. Um, he and I said to to my assistant, I said, you know what, he he's owie, he hurts, and I didn't really give him anything that's good for his 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 owie. So uh, I gave him a little bit more propofol, and we repositioned him. We put some towels in places we thought might help with the positioning, and that seemed to improve as he woke up. He didn't seem to care, but I mean that's another example where this dog is coming in, you know with a retroperitoneal mass that doesn't seem to be painful, has other clinical signs, but, um, and, you know, is being treated as a lot of older patients are for osteoarthritis and, you know, aches and pains in the joints. Um, but, but didn't give us any indication as he was awake when we were placing catheter or anything, but, but did tell us that, Hey, remember, I don't feel good here. And, uh, for me to say Gus is a, is a biter, would be wrong um, because he did try something and it was because he hurt and I didn't give him any analgesia that I would say was good for the, the process. So, you know, your friend yesterday could, could, could be unhappy because uh, maybe just the way you picked them up or, or position them, um, the mouth feels okay, but there are other parts of the body that might not be so feeling good. You know? And she was a dachshund, so there was a good chance that that was the case. And then you got back stuff, you know, like, right. so, so that's why it's really important, again, going back to the individual and looking at the whole picture, not just the oral cavity but looking at the dog as a whole. And I think mm -hmm. that's where we've improved as pain management. And that's what gets us to multimodal, right? I mean, the multimodal approach is, is a thought where we're looking at the whole picture, not just at the, where the incision is going to be and that, oh yeah, a shot of morphine or a shot of hydro is going to cover our pain. And we go on to our next patient. If we think about our multimodal approach, we think about all of the drugs we're using to touch the patient in a full um, for the, the physical physiology of pain for the pain pathways, that gives us a much more, um, in my opinion, a much more smoother, comfortable recovery, looking at the whole picture versus just thinking about, oh, yeah, well, I, I did, you know, I did uh, the local block and it should be fine. Yeah, but there might be other areas that might not be so comfortable with this pet that we may have, you know, sparked. Can you talk a little bit more about how the multimodal approach applies when we're trying to ensure a safe recovery for our patients? Yeah, doctor, um, a multimodal approach, um, you know, some people think when I when I moved out uh, to where I'm at now, and I left the University of Pennsylvania, and I came to a specialty hospital, and I went to the drug cabinet, and I had, uh, you know, lots of syringes, I looked kind of like Edward Scissorhands with my <laughs> syringes and, and, and got that name right away. Um, oh, Edward's coming to the drug box. And I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? And, and they say all those drugs. Um, I'm like, it's not all those drugs. It is a sage of it is it's not necessarily polypharmacology in the wrong way, as much as it is, uh, you know, thinking about the drugs I'm using that are affecting the patient in different places. Um, and so when I use multimodal approach, I am using less of one, I'm using less of all drugs. So I have the potential to have less complications from one drug. So, you know, in other words, if I use all propofol on a patient, the chances are that I'm going to have, you know, dose dependent respiratory depression and hypotension. That's not going to be as transient as I would like, because I keep giving propofol to keep that patient still versus if I gave a little benzo with it. And then of course, always think about my analgesia. Um, the analogy I used to use with my students would be I have two plates of pasta and one plate um, I give you has all salt on it. It's just all salt, right? The other plate I give you has salt and basil and oregano and garlic, all of these sexy spices, right? And then I put them on the table and I say, okay, 
let, let me see, taste test, which one do you like? And I say, which one's going to be more palatable? And the one with all of the spices. Now, there was always a student in the group. <laughs> There's always one that oh, would yeah. say, I like salt and I want the one and I don't like all the other spices. I want just the one with salt. And I say, okay, student. <laughs> okay, student, uh, what are you going to find after you eat that plate of pasta with all the salt? You're going to have a lot more problems throughout the day because you're going to drink a lot of water. You're going to retain. You're going to, you know, you, you, you might you might find that your knees look like your, your ankles look like your knees. I mean, you're going to have, so you know, water retention. Um, the people that eat the plate of pasta are going to have that palatable plate, but they're not going to have those negative effects from from one spice, you know, from all, you know, now that they have a balanced plate of pasta. And so that's where, you know, you always touch vet students or nursing students in the appetite area and, and the <laughs> food area. And usually we could make that analogy work, right? So uh, that got people to understand really the multimodal because I'm using drugs to make, you know, a, a more stable patient because that allows me to use less drugs intraoperatively. Um, as I use lots of dose, lots of drugs with little doses, right? And, and the best thing that we could try to do with this multimodal approach is to try to minimize how much inhalant we're using. Um, because I think that's the big culprit in our hypotension that we deal with throughout the procedure is the vaporizer setting is too high. Um, and, you know, that is an easy way of keeping that patient still, right? Just turn up the vaporizer. But on the other hand, it makes our job harder because we're now struggling with hypotension throughout the procedure and people want to blame acepromazine, they want to blame propofol, they want to blame, you know, all these other things that we're doing. And a lot of times it is the inhalant. Um, and so the multimodal approach not only allows us to touch the patient as a whole in different areas where tranquilizers work certain ways and opioids work certain ways. And then we have the NMD antagonists and oketamine um, and then the locals, of course. Uh, but it also allows us then to keep that vaporizer lower and allows us to keep a, a better, um, a st more stable patient in regards to blood pressure. Because again, going back to the beginning where we started was oxygenation and maintaining perfusion is uh, blood pressure to all vital organs is what our job is. And if we are having a crisis with blood pressure, that, I mean, that could make or break our day. I mean, I, when, oh, I, yeah. when I, when I do a patient and if it's hypotensive, I mean, I want to get on that and try to remedy it. And, you know, sometimes these higher level patients can take us half the procedure to get that blood pressure stabilized, but multimodal hopefully um, will allow us to get that blood pressure better fine-tuned and at a better place where we like it and not have to, you know, think that we have to turn that vaporizer wide, you know, way up um, to, to keep the patient still. So I think multimodal is, is like looking at the whole picture um, of using, you know, kind of like all these different pieces to the puzzle to make that patient uh, have a better experience. Absolutely. And, and Donna, you're the perfect example here of how this is really a team sport. I mean, this isn't one person goes in and tries to do everything. This is everybody is, has, you know, some understanding of what their role is in keeping this patient stable, because there's a lot of variables and a lot of factors to consider. Um, can you talk about what that looks like to you as far as really taking the team approach to anesthesia and a safe recovery? Yeah, that's a great, uh, uh, topic to mention here, because a lot of people feel, you know, when I teach students or anybody that I'm kind of guiding and directing with anesthesia, I always tell them you're not alone. And they say, but it's a lonely place being behind that drape, you know, where you're on the other side of the drape and you're feeling like, you know, you're, you know, by yourself making all these decisions. And I say, no, you, you're not, that's not, that's not true. You, it is a team. It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. Um, we need all players in place for us to be able to do a good job. Um, we need the clinician, we need the anesthetist, and we need um, some support staff. And, uh, you know, if, if the clinician's not ready, and we start the anesthetic event, and then we have to wait, that's, 
you know, delayed anesthesia, that's, you know, also adding to the patient being asleep, um, hypothermia, potential hypotension, because there's no stimulation, you know, the list can go on. And then it's a struggle until we get that stimulation to happen. Um, and we're having the patient anesthetized for unnecessary moments. Um, so the clinician needs to be in the ready position. And the clinician is the captain of the ship. I mean, we need to make sure that the clinician is on board with our approach, right? Um, you know, giving them the idea of what protocols, sometimes clinicians make the protocols. In my situation, clinicians are relying on me to make protocols because that's all I do. <laughs> and, and it would be silly to ask me to do something else because I wouldn't get the job done. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're not a VTS and you're a, a nurse technician that is expected to anesthetize patients, you may have to run your protocol by your clinician and make sure they're okay with it. And then having that assistant, I mean, gosh, there are some days that my assistants are three steps ahead of me. And I don't know what I would do without, you know, I have one assistant that I say she's my right hand, my left hand, and sometimes even my left foot, um, <laughs> because I, she is incredible. I mean, she knows exactly what to do, when to do it. And we don't even have to talk some days because she's so uh, on top of things. So everybody needs to give love to your assistants. Um, let's not Amen. forget these assistants because, gosh, I mean, the assistants that I work with, um, when I first moved here and had a very unexperienced team, um, I had to feel like an octopus in a lot of ways where I had to feel like I had to be everywhere because the assistant didn't know what to do. And there wasn't any time to train because it was a new hospital and they were expecting us all to just keep moving because we needed to make money to stay open because we're a new hospital. So, uh, you know, the whole team has to be ready and be prepared. And the whole team, you know, may not know, the clinician may not know exactly what, you know, is going on, but we should be communicating to that clinician. Uh, as we are on the other side of the drape, we need to let the clinician know if it's a surgery, uh, how that patient is doing. Um, because sometimes surgeons aren't always, you know, chatty in the OR, right? They're not always, you know, saying how's things going or this is what I'm doing. You as the anesthetist need to stay communicating with your clinician and letting them know what's happening and then also asking them what they're doing that might be causing something that you're witnessing. Um, and then having that uh, support staff there in, in a position where maybe they're not in the room with you the whole time, but that they're available that if you do need something that you don't have to leave your patient for too long to be able to um, incorporate something that you think is necessary for that moment. Um, so as multimodal with drugs is so important and should be the way we're thinking about anesthesia in the 21st century, um, so is the uh, team approach, right? It, it's, it, it, it's the most important thing to keep in mind is that you can't, because if you have a complication, if you were to have a patient have an arrest, I mean, you need at least two or three people to be able to uh, run that code. I mean, you're not going to be able to do it alone. You're not going to be able to do it, you know, even with two people, it's tough. So, you know, three is ideal. And if I think about clinician, assistant, and, and anesthetist, there you go, you have three. So, um, you know, everybody being in tune to where we are and where we need to go and how we're going to end up is, um, is critical to that, to that loved one, to that patient. Yeah. Communication is what I hear primarily, just making sure we're communicating with each other. Yeah, I don't think people, I think, you know, as a whole, you know, we're poor communicators. Um, again, present company excluded. Um, <laughs> I, I, I talk so much throughout the day that sometimes I get in the car and I can't stop hearing myself talk. Oh, I know. And you just get tired of hearing your own voice at the end of the yes. day. Like somebody calls you, wants to talk on the phone. You're like, I can't because I can't yes. listen to myself talk anymore. Yes. Exactly. Like I'll get home and my spouse will want to have talks and then she'll see me and she'll say, oh, looks like you gave too much at the office again. Huh? <laughs> and I'll say, I, I, I just need to be quiet. I just need to be quiet because I've talked all day. Um, when I worked at Penn, they used to laugh at me because I was talking, you know, a bigger area to talk a lot. And so I had a lot more people to talk to. Um, and they, you know, people would notice how many places I would talk and uh, how many people I would get involved for one procedure. Um, and they would say, Oh my God, do you ever stop talking? And I say, <laughs> when it comes to my patient, no, because we could never talk enough when it comes to our patients. And, and I think that's where, you know, 
no one would ever believe that I used to be a shy, introverted individual. Um, no one would ever believe <laughs> that I was terrified of public speaking. Um, but what brought this out was my uh, my employment at, at a university. Um, when I took the job on as a, an anesthetist in, in, the, in the anesthesia department, um, I had to get a voice very quickly. Um, I had to find my voice very quickly. And what helped me find my voice was my patient. Um, I, I had to learn how to advocate with my voice for my patient in letting the clinician know what's going on, telling them, no, you can't do that right now. I apologize, but you got to give me 30 seconds because the patient's not ready. Um, but it was all about the patient. So I have no one to thank but the patient and students, of course, on how it brought out this um, this this part of my personality that I think is important for us to be able to do good patient care because I think uh, you know when you're in the business as long as I have been it, it would be selfish for me not to share all of my experiences and if I was introverted and didn't you know want to speak and didn't want to you know get involved with other people then then I would be not sharing all of these responsibilities and I think it's important for people to hear the stories and and people to know that it does take excellent communication for everybody to be on the same page uh, with that patient because you know if, if we misinterpret uh, what or if we assume if we make assumptions on what what's happening or where you know this has happened many times where oh I didn't know you were going to do that much work and then it ends up that the patient is painful and I used a drug like butorphanol and now I'm in a struggle because now I have to put a pure opioid in there um, because I didn't ask the clinician how painful was it going to be and what were you what was you know it'll be a real quick It'll be a real quick sedation. And I'm always leery of real quick or not too long. Fair, um, fair. <laughs> I'm, I'm always, always leery like, of that. We could do this one more thing. Yeah, real quick. In fact, yeah. I have a couple um, staff members that one of their, their nicknames is real quick and the other one's nickname is um, not too long. Um, and the ironic thing about not too long is her last name is long. Oh, that's um, funny. So, so she got <laughs> not the too nickname long. not too long because she always seems to be the person in, in place of the not too long. This won't take too long. Um, and it always ends up being Rose. And then real quick always ends up being Sarah. And we always joke about it. And we'll say, how long was real quick? And she'll say an hour and a half when mm -hmm. it was supposed to be 15 minutes. And so you know, this is where, again, you know, the, the, the clinician is busy. They're doing lots of things. They're involved in a lot of different things. They have a, a full plate of, of, of items they have to take care of. On the other hand, it is our responsibility for that because I take my job seriously as the patient advocate. Um, you know, the clinician, clinician is a patient advocate too, but I'm the voice of that patient. I mean, I, when I, when I take that patient on as my patient to anesthetize, I am that patient's advocate and everyone needs an advocate and I am now speaking as if the patient told me I don't feel good here I hurt there tell them to stop doing this so I have to find my voice to talk to the clinician and say hey doc I don't think that's good right now can you hold on and that's not always easy for the nurse technician because you feel like you're maybe out of bounds because the clinician is the captain of the ship um, but communication and finding your voice and being able to uh, get that message across appropriately, you know, tactfully, um, putting some stress aside because sometimes we bark at people. Um, you know, we don't want to do that. We want to find our way, our voice in how we can communicate appropriately so that we can get the job done, uh, uh, you know, uh, efficiently and effectively. And uh, that's 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 communication is is so critical to our patients, uh, in, especially in anesthesia, because we got to let everybody know what's happening happening. And at the end, that creates a better outcome for our patient. And that's really what the end goal is for everybody involved. That's exactly it. I mean, that's keep your eye on the prize, as I would say, you know, like, you know, I've worked with, with uh, technicians that did that felt awkward working with certain surgeons, certain clinicians, because they felt like they couldn't, you know, they, they, they felt like the clinician was A, B or C. And I don't know how I'm gonna, I'm like, you know what, put your own feelings aside and think about advocating for the patient and think about uh, being professional and don't take it personally and remember that you have the prize and we all have that same prize, which is a comfortable, safe patient that gets to go home sooner versus later. 
Oh yeah. And you develop some uh, thick skin in that OR sometimes. Let <laughs> me tell you. It's stressful then. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you do. And then maybe it takes, uh, you know, the, after the fact that when the procedure is all done and you know, your, your patient is safe that you go to the clinician and say, Hey, you know, I, I'm sorry I did this or, um, you know, and maybe the clinician comes to you and says, hey, sorry, I didn't mean to be, you know, this way with you. But, you know, it's because they're stressed about what they're right. doing, um, especially if it's a, you know, a pretty intense procedure. Um, everybody has their own, you know, moments in, of stress and we all deal with it differently. Uh, but the most important thing is to take a deep breath and to think about how you're going to get the message across where you're going to make something happen that is good for the patient. So you mentioned anesthesia in the 21st century, but let's talk analgesia in the 21st century. I mean, veterinary analgesia has really come a long way in recent years. So can you talk about some of the the drugs, some of the techniques that are out there that may be new or, um, you know, utilizing things in a way maybe we haven't thought of before to help provide the best experience for our patients? Yeah. I mean, so much information, I mean, um, I to, to talk about here. Uh, so, so in regards to new therapies, new approaches, I mean, there's, I feel like, um, as I've watched the, the evolution of veterinary medicine in my 36 years in the business, um, we are doing an excellent job with um, those of us who want to do an excellent job. I mean, we all, all want to do an excellent job, but you have to think about changing uh, some of your approaches if you really want to stay up to date with some of this new stuff. So, um, you know, I talk to a lot of people and they say, well, we don't need to change anything because, you know, we're getting the job done and it's the whole added of it. It's not broke. So why try to fix it? Um, well, because medicine is ever changing. And as we are medical professionals, we also should be thinking about how we're improving for our patients care and recovery. And, you know, yes, even though we're getting through things and everybody's doing fine, maybe we can do a better job, we should always be trying to do a better job. Um, and in some of the therapies that we have now that I've witnessed us incorporating into our anesthetic protocols and, uh, you know, following through in recovery, I mean, I'm finding that I've never seen such smooth recoveries in my career um, with some of the most intense procedures like amputations and total ear canal ablations and well, TPLOs and, um, you know, radical mastectomies and, you know, some of these that are high level pain uh, procedures, um, recoveries have been incredible because of the therapies that we're using. And one real simple one that anybody can incorporate in that it is not a specialty or university medicine approach is ketamine. Ketamine is such a magical drug. Um, and most people think of ketamine as associated with the feline patient, right? A lot of us think, oh, we're going to tame the tiger. We're going to give it a, <laughs> a dose of ketamine, either squirt it in its mouth or give it an IM, but it's going to be that chemically restraining uh, drug that's going to help us get that tiger tamed. Because before we had alfaxalone, um, you know, we didn't really have any good drugs. Opioids are questionable if it's going to touch that cat. Um, you know, dextomator, people are anxious about using that in cats. And then even ketamine in older cats, we don't know what we're dealing with in regards to cardiac status. Um, but that's the drug that we all grew up knowing that we could tame the tiger with is ketamine. And ketamine is such a magical drug, and it's not a very old drug. Um, it is not considered an analgesic, it's considered a pain modifying agent. If you talk to human medicine people, they'll talk to you about ketamine being a pain modifying agent. This is a drug that is, is, is cheap and it's easy to incorporate into our protocol as a CRI as what we call sub-anesthetic doses, not doses that are causing anesthesia, but doses that are affecting the patient in the pain pathway, which is in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord uh, at these receptors called NMDA receptors, N-methyl D-aspirate receptors, um, where ketamine comes in and it does what it does. And it, you know, it all boils down to a magnesium plug. And, and please, I don't know how you see a magnesium plug, but there are these experts that tell me that that it has to do with what happens with a magnesium plug and how ketamine works. So if I live to 99 and I work till I'm 95, I don't know that I'll ever truly understand everything <laughs> in the pain pathway, but I do know 
that incorporating ketamine in, in sub-anesthetic doses has really made a difference for a lot of our patients because what it's doing is it's interfering with that beast that we try to avoid, which is wind-up, central sensitization. And, you know, we have an opioid that helps us with that, which is methadone, but a lot of us don't use methadone. A lot of us don't have methadone. Um, you know, it might not be in the, in the price range and it might be something that we're not comfortable with yet. And, um, you know, we're doing okay with hydro, but if you work in a ketamine, um, CRI, which we can all do, even if you put it in your IV fluids, you could run it. I mean, you don't need a syringe pump. That's the other thing is you don't need a lot of fancy equipment. All you need is a calculator to calculate out your, your loading dose and your CRI dose. And these are doses that aren't anesthetic doses. These are doses that you'll be able to not really witness any changes. Other than that, what you might notice is that you may not need as much fentanyl or you may not need as much um, inhalants, or you may not need, need as much hydro or, or uh, uh, other drugs that you're using um, because you're hitting that patient uh, in a different part of the pain pathway. So ketamine um, has become probably on the top of the list of my favorite drug uh, because it's something that most practices have and it can easily be incorporated into a protocol um, that can help with that patient's comfort. Uh, again, thinking about those, those patients that are older and most of them have osteoarthritis. I mean, maybe what you're doing isn't necessarily needing a lot of like you did an oral cavity and you did all the blocks, but this dog has osteoarthritis. So maybe a ketamine CRI, in addition to the local blocks, will help that patient as a whole recover a little bit nicer because we might make them a little bit light lighter in their shoes when they wake up if they have osteoarthritis, right? So, um, and, and people, this is in human medicine, they talk about pain holidays, where people that have chronic pain, they go in the hospital and, you know, uh, depending on what their clinician thinks, they go in, they might go on a ketamine CRI for 24, 36 hours, they leave the hospital feeling a little bit less painful. So ketamine is very magical. And that's something that I think people need to be thinking about incorporating in. If you listen to Dr. Mark Epstein, he's brilliant on how he describes ketamine. Um, he basically is saying, it, it, it should be used on, on almost every patient that there is some moderate to severe pain associated with. So, so everybody keep your ear out and, and look out for ketamine information. I have tons of information that I could share if anyone's interested. Um, so, so let's not forget ketamine and let's, sorry, cats, but it's not just for you. <laughs> I just pissed off a bunch of cats now. <laughs> um, and, and then this other new modality that we have, which is Noceta. Um, Noceta is a liposomal bupivacaine and Noceta it has made, uh, you know, of course on label, Noceta is for the, the cruciate on the canine and now for the feline, it's on label for peripheral nerve block. Um, Noceta is a post-op infiltration liposomal bupivacaine that could give you 68 to 72 hours of pain control. And let's think about that. That's the most critical time for us to be aggressive with our pain management is the first 68 to 72 hours. Um, and if we could, as closure, do an infiltration technique or, you know, a peripheral nerve block when we talk about doing declaws, I know most of us don't like declaws, but this is what they use to get the drug on label because they had to choose a protocol that cats get, a procedure that cats get that are normal healthy and they chose the knee for dogs because a lot of dogs get knee surgery and they chose the declaw for cats because a lot of cats get declawed I know we're trying to minimize that now but that was how they were able to get it on label for the feline patient I'm telling you incorporating this into our post-op uh, pain management has made our recoveries incredibly smoother because we're, it is allowing us to minimize how many opioids we're using and we're getting our patients back to looking more like themselves because we don't have Q4 injections of hydro or methadone, uh, you know, to cover that TPLO pain. Um, so, so Noceta and off-label, I mean, off-label, I can talk, you know, for hours off-label on all of the procedures I've used it on. So, you know, people hopefully can reach out to me and talk to me about off-label, but on-label, uh, when we started using it for our TPLOs, I mean, these were patients, yeah, they got an epidural, but then we were using it on patients that didn't get an epidural. So practices that don't feel comfortable doing epidurals, 
Noceta, I didn't feel like I lost anything because, you know, we weren't able to do the epidural. Maybe we didn't get it or the client requested we didn't do it because of how the hair grows back and, you know, all of that other stuff that they might complain about um, because they judge our work on how the patient looks, right? Um, I didn't feel like we missed that epidural as much as I thought we would when we infiltrated Noceta into that post-op, you know, at that closure for that TPLO. Um, I'm allowing for quicker uh, recoveries in regards to the patient looking more like themselves, less opioid use, less dysphoria, less uh, GI upset, less potential for, you know, vomiting and aspiration. Um, so Noceta, in combination with ketamine, I mean, I, I'm seeing recoveries that are incredible um, for these patients that, uh, and, and I'm told that these cats that have been exposed to wildfires and have burned pads, burned paws, they were using Noceta peripheral blocks on these cats that had burned feet. And these cats were recovering a lot faster, a lot quicker, and um, were comfortable. So Noceta, um, I could give you a lot of information on Noceta off-label if anyone's interested. Um, but, but that's a new modality that people think they can afford and they can. And I could very easily go in for a whole hour on talking about how you can afford it into your practice. Um, the other thing is local blocks. I mean, a, a lot of people just, we don't do enough local blocks. And when you think about it, local blocks are the only thing that we do that provide complete analgesia. Right. I mean, they were, there's nothing else that we're using that's complete. Um, but if you do a good local block, um, your block works and it's complete analgesia, um, all you have to think about is what's going to happen when the block wears off. Um, and I think why we don't do enough blocks is because I think that they don't last long enough. You know, we have to train people to do them. Um, again, we work in a busy world. We have to be efficient. And, you know, since COVID, we're even busier. Um, so training does take a back seat sometimes. I, I'm not happy to say, but it is the reality. Um, and, and, you know, the blocks require a little bit of training. Sometimes you need to have an ultrasound or you might want to have a nerve block, a stimulator. Um, but it's still something to consider uh, thinking about working in, especially during times when opioids were hard to get. Um, so local blocks really should be on the minds of everybody. Um, and, you know, we think lidocaine, bupivacaine, but that's what's even important to think about a drug like Noceta, because a local block could last two to eight hours, depending on what you're using drug-wise, uh, maybe a little bit longer if your block was good. But when you think about your infiltration with Noceta, you could get 68 to 72 hours um, if you place that drug appropriately. Um, so again, the, the, the drug is not going to be as good. I mean, the drug is only as good as the person handling it. So if you don't know what you're doing with it, you might not find it's working for you. Um, and you need to be trained on how to do an appropriate block. Um, but, but, you know, these are some things that I think are within our realm that we can do. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things. And let's, let's really not forget cryotherapy. How important is icing? I mean, ice post-operatively can, I mean, is amazing in its analgesic properties, right? I mean, I, I tuned into a lecture not maybe six months, maybe a little bit longer ago. Um, all, it was all, and I forget who actually gave the talk, but it was all on, you know, icing chronic cryotherapy and, and uh, an, an amazing analgesic. Um, if you think about it, if you hurt your foot, you hit something or you burn your hand and you immediately ice it, you're going to have less negative effects as time goes on with that injury that you had because inflammation is a lot of what our post-op pain is and ice is a great analgesic ice helps with the inflammation so you know cryotherapy then you know there's a lot of other things like stem cell therapy and prp and all that other stuff um that is a talk in itself but um some of the things that are within our realm is ketamine Noceta and the locals that we have. And, you know, those are drugs that I don't hear are going on shortage. I, those are drugs that people can still have access to. And, you know, since Noceta has come in, what I, what I say to people is since we got alone and we have ketamine and we have Noceta, I feel like those are the three drugs you know, there are other drugs that are all important too, but those are the three drugs that I feel like have really placed us in a better place with our patients in regards to the event and the recovery. And just being open-minded about 
trying something new is uh, the first step in that direction. I mean, you have to be willing to make that uh, change, whether it be tuning into a webinar, contacting a VTS or an anesthesiologist to see if you get some training. I think that's our job as caregivers, as medical professionals, that we should be always thinking about how we can make improvements with our patients. Absolutely. So new tools that we have, some revamping of old, old tools to use them in ways that we maybe didn't think of in the past. I think that's great input of just some things that we can do to benefit our patients when it comes to anesthesia and recovery. Donna, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. We're so happy to have you. And I feel like, you know, this was just a wonderful talk about really good considerations to give our patients the best recovery possible. Thank you, doctor. This is really exciting for me because again, um, you know, my role right now is not just to go into a hospital and anesthetize, you know, ABC patients, but my role also is to make sure I'm touching more patients um, with the, the knowledge and the skills that I have uh, obtained throughout the years with all of the uh, top notch people that I've been fortunate to be able to have contact with, like Dr. Robertson, Dr. Grubb, Dr. Epstein. I mean, the list goes on of all the brainiacs that I, the big brains, I call them, that I stay in touch with. Um, to share this with as many people, because again, it's the ripple effect. And if I can touch you and you could take one thing away and, and incorporate that onto a patient, then that makes me feel like we're, I'm, I'm hopefully touching more patients that are getting a little bit better care than they might have otherwise. Um, so I appreciate this time. I appreciate your attendance in. I appreciate um, all that uh, Vetfolio is doing for our patients. And um, yeah, I hope to continue the conversation. Me too. Me too. I think that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Donna, for joining us and for sharing your knowledge and passion about safe, low-stress anesthesia. Thank you to Elenco for sponsoring this talk and, of course, to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on Betfolio's website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. Mm-hmm.